Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and with me, the Fortean researcher, writer, and artist, Red Pill Junkie. Man, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the Keneal case and and just how, man, this is just a really strange case. (laughs) It is serious, Rob. And and beforehand, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to have a chance to uh, talk about ufos and especially to have a chance to talk about these sort of uh, cases these high strangeness cases that are often overlooked by people in the united states i guess because of uh, the language barrier or other considerations like the idea that the americans still feel that the only cases worth investigating are the ones that happen in their own country yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely, the the broader view is the better view. The more complete picture you two have of everything that's going on, the better. Yeah, so, um, so were you the first person to write about this case in English? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I I wouldn't claim uh, dare to claim to to say that. I'm sure that um, probably people like Scott Corrales with his mm. blog, Inexplicata. Uh, uh, Scott has been writing about Latin American and Hispanic ufology for years and years, even before I somewhat entered uh, into the 14 blogosphere, as I, as I call it. Uh, so I don't know, maybe maybe in Scott's uh, blog, there's something about the Conil case. But yeah, I decided to write about it for Mysterious Universe because uh, it is so it, it was so difficult to try to compete with the likes of Nick Redfern. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had yeah. Nick Redfern and Micah Hanks and all the other guys writing for MU, and as I was like, oh my god, so what can I can I write about that these guys haven't even touched? And I remember, oh, the Coneal case, because I stumbled upon upon it when I read Juan Jose Benitez's book, La Quinta Columna, The Fifth Column, mm. which is a book he wrote in the 1990s, that it is exclusively about uh, close encounters cases with humanoids that happened in Spain. It is a... Uh, Fantastic book. Unfortunately, Benitez's books, as far as I know, have never been translated into English. I don't know why, what keeps. I mean, in the 21st century, come on. But, <laughs> well, that's the case. So that, I, I decided to, like, okay, I'm going to be, like, the emissary for Mr. Benitez, and I'm going to write about it for for the MU audience. And that's why I wrote that two-parter uh, article, The Night of the Humanoids. Yeah, and like I think the best way to describe this case is uh, it, it it almost seems like the introduction to uh, a sci-fi horror film in a way, just mm. in just in like 
it's almost like an invading force in a way it, it shows up and it has the ability to change itself and to blend in. So uh, that was the first thing that came to mind is like sci-fi horror film. This would make a great premise for a sci-fi horror film. Right. Yeah. I also, I think I remember um, comparing it with um, this graphic novel, um, this comic series Marvels. Yes, uh, yes. That was illustrated by Alex Ross because what they did, him and, and the writer, I think it was Kurt Busiek, was that they grabbed these classic stories from the Marvel Universe and everybody, that everybody knows about, like uh, the Fantastic Four's battle with Galactus and the arrival of the Silver Surfer and the death of Mary Jane uh with the spider-man and all that but they decided to put it in the in the perspective of an um, outside bystander like the humans who are watching all these 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 gods fighting and they don't know what's going on they, they, they because you know they, they don't have the advantage of the comic book reader who has like almost like a godlike vantage point and, and a narrator explaining the situation here you don't have a narrator. You don't know what's going on. And I feel almost like that was the case with these kids when they were seeing uh, these strange happenings, happenings before their eyes, like these entities coming to the beach, this uh, Playa de los Bateles or Bateles Beach uh, out, of, out of the sea. And then they go and they uh, sit on the beach in a very awkward position, they create almost like a like a wall of sand in order to cover themselves very poorly. Obviously, I mean, what? Uh, why are they doing that? In, almost uh, as if they were putting on a, a show, right? And yeah. then they they have this transformation, like they they get up and they have been somehow transformed into almost like uh, normal looking human beings, except from the high the, the, the fact that they still kind of like stand out in, in, a, in a Spanish town in Cadiz, like this, the, the, the male was uh, almost uh, seven foot tall. The woman was also very tall and the male had this very protuberant forehead with a very long hair. It's like, okay, you know, okay, you, you, you be, became human, but you know, it wasn't like a perfect transformation. And then they go inside the town to do, who knows what? Yeah. You know? And apparently, uh, this is something that, that happened for a number of uh, days. And in fact, uh, has happened uh, on numerous occasions, the, the sighting of strange entities in that particular town in Cadiz, not only in the 1990s, but also even in the 1980s, and also even in the 2000s, as we can discuss uh, later. Yeah. The, the area where this is, it's a, a Canillo de la Frontera is uh, it's a coastal town, basically. Like uh, there's there's a lot of beaches. Uh, I just from the little that I read up on it, it seems like the kind of place that, uh, you know, makes a lot of its tourism dollars just from like summertime beach stuff. So, right. And, you know, the I've seen pictures and just absolutely beautiful beaches and, and stuff like that. And. Uh, the particular beach that we're talking about, yeah, uh, Playa de los uh, Bateles is, mm. um, 
where this goes down, and, and I think what's interesting up front is we have four witnesses here. We have Pedro Sanchez, uh, Isabel Sanchez, Pedro Gonzalez, and Lolly Bermudez. And they're spending time at this beach at night, and mm-hmm. they see what is essentially what they describe as like a red moon, a very large object that's not at a particularly high elevation in the sky but it's very distinct and they watch this thing for like like what 14 15 nights or something like that i think so yeah 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 and and obviously uh one will think that they weren't the only people right who had watched this um luminous object uh, but they, yeah, they were seeing this and obviously, uh, eventually they told their families, okay, we're going to go to the beach because there's this thing happening. It's, it, it is, it is strange. And this is something that maybe the skeptics will point out that no one else, aside from the other, the other, the fifth witness, the, the, the little kid who was, I think, 14 years old and no one else, no adult accompanied them to see, oh, okay, okay. What is this? Uh, red moon nonsense you guys are talking about it is kind of strange but uh, well that's the story right these aren't exactly you know like teenagers you know you have uh, some of them are in their 20s the the youngest one at this point uh, before the fifth witness joins is 17 so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know they're definitely not in in the youngish like gullible point that i would you know put like uh, at least, you know, in terms of like unreliable witnesses, I don't think that they're that. Uh, yeah, it also reminds me almost to the 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 first uh, Mothman yes. encounter, Absolutely. except of the fact that, uh, as far as we know, these um, these youngsters weren't engaged in some kind of like uh, frolic. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you were discussing the idea of a horror movie, and it's always the case in American horror movies. Where oh, yeah. When, <laughs> when the teens are in the, the lover's lane, and that's when the, the monster, the werewolf strikes, you know, when they're not paying attention. <laughs> oh, Johnny, what was that? Ah, oh, never mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Uh, they would see this object. It would usually show up between like eight thirty and nine o'clock at night, and it would usually depart by nine thirty. And like I said, they watched this thing over, you know, fourteen, fifteen nights, and, and they were looking at this thing through a set of binoculars, and they were able to notice that there were kind of like four uh, white dots on it uh, as well, mm-hmm. and they would strobe inter- intermittently on and off. But the the culmination of this is on uh, September 29th, 1989. And and I think what's, uh, you know, to set this up uh, in a way is like this case doesn't really fit in with a lot of what was going on in 1989, at least in in the UFO culture that was happening at the time. Aside from uh, Verones, which, you know, happened two two days before this. So. Uh, you know, that's that's another one that doesn't really fit into the time period. But uh, if you look at what's dominating, it, at least, you know, in the United States, it, it is abduction cases because uh, right. by, by this time, communion has come out, intruders has come out. And those two kind of really set the stage for UFO culture, um, I, especially now you have a lot of. 
uh, uh, abductees coming forward, experiencers coming forward and uh, starting to share their stories. You have cattle mutilations, which is big. You have uh, in 89, I believe that is 89 the year that Bill Moore kind of, you know, exposed mm-hmm. his deceptions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. On, yeah. Yep. So this, the, these stories, this and Veronage definitely set themselves apart from most of what is going on in the UFO world, which I find just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. The, the witnesses did not uh, observe the typical gray, gray-like entities that by then had become like the dominant archetype mm-hmm. of the alien entity. These are very strange tall entities with uh, very round uh, white heads with no discernible features and wearing these robes that were so white they they appeared to be almost like glowing and they appeared to be almost like... uh, No, they weren't floating. Uh, On the contrary, they they had very uh, jerky movements almost as if they weren't able to bend their their knees and then the other one you know the the giant the 10 foot tall giant with a okay a pure shaped head which is kind of characteristic of other other uh described uh humanoids Mm -hmm. uh but the size and the stiffness of the movements and all of that it is really really something that makes this case stand out so prominently. Yeah. On the night of the 29th, uh, they add a fifth member to their group, Lazaro, who is uh, Isabel's brother. And uh, they would meet in the same spot every single night, which was um, it was in front of the, a bar called uh, Los Corrales. And... Mm-hmm. They were usually stationed like I don't know, a few hundred meters away. But on this particular night, it, as they add this one group, uh, this this one uh, member to their group, things change. Instead of you get the typical, um, the same object that that returns, but like from the horizon, they see uh, what they what looks like a this like semicircle of white lights coming Mm -hmm. in from the horizon and coming towards them. And through the binoculars that they have, they they can also see this uh, triangular formation of red lights that's inside of it. Mm -hmm. And this light formation comes in over the water and it flies over their heads. It's almost like a kind of a signaling event that uh, something weird's going to happen. After this formation passes, a third light, uh, appeared directly above the witnesses. At first, it looked like it was just another star. Mm-hmm, it was just mm-hmm. really tiny, and then it flashed three times, and, and when it did, the red moon object that appeared every single night would respond with its own flashes, which is is very eerie. And yeah. then uh, this display lasted for about 30 minutes. Then all of a sudden... The the attention of one of these uh, one of the witnesses is drawn to these figures on the sand, and 
Um, like you said, they're they're approximately seven feet tall. They are adorned in these white cloaks that just covers their bodies. And um, I mean, their heads were described. They were basically featureless, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. that correctly. OK, yes, and, yes. And I mean, naturally, this unnerves everybody except for Pedro Gonzalez, who pretty much convinces everybody to stay. And it kind of reminded me of um, and I know it's a case that has controversy cast on it, but uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Allagash abductions when in uh, the light oh, appears right. in the sky mm. and everybody's starting to freak out. But Chuck racks in the back like, guys, it's fine. No problem. Don't worry about it. Everybody's starting to freak out, but Pedro's just trying to keep everybody calm. Another thing that they reminded me of, uh, there's a couple of different beings that these uh, that they reminded me of. Uh, one of them is the, um, in, in specifically in the way that they're drawn, the beings that Gary Wilcox uh, encountered in Tioga City, like mm-hmm. hours before the Lonnie Zabora incident, and 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 like it's the one preceding incident that I think, you know, pins the extraterrestrial stuff on Lonnie Zamora. It's like that valet first suggested, I think in, um, I don't know if it was passport to Magonia or another book, but he essentially interacts with these beings that like are completely covered from head to toe in this kind of luminous covering. It's white. Uh, and they communicate telepathically. They also reminded me of, a case from Africa in 1981, the uh, La Rochelle incident in which a bunch of uh, workers that were working on the La Rochelle estate, uh, they encountered this, um, it was a globe of light. One of the witnesses had seen it initially uh, up in a tree and then uh, it it rolled out of a tree and it rolled across this uh, property. It actually rolled up into a really high tower uh, and it just kind of had a mind of its own. And and one of the main witnesses was a guy named Clifford Muchena. And when he went to go ring this bell to alert people to what he thought was a fire, he ran into these very strange, tall figures that were adorned in white. Their heads were luminous and uh, they just made him fearful instantly. He actually fell to his knees. So like, it's interesting to see kind of these archetypes in other cases, Um, not totally unfamiliar, but definitely still distinct in this case. Mm -hmm. The two beings then, started to move in their direction uh, at right. first. It seemed like they were coming towards them. And like you said, it, it it didn't seem like walking was easy for them. It's like they didn't know how to bend their knees. Uh, and eventually, as they started to all now uh, turn around and, and run away, one of them, I think it was Pedro, again, stopped them and they turned around and looked and they saw that they were actually turned and staring towards the ocean. Yes. You know, which is is almost more unnerving, at least if I were in that situation, I think I would be a little more unnerved by that. But the witnesses kept a safe distance. They were, you know, about 30 meters away or about 100 feet. And the events continued. This small white orb of light started to fall towards the beach where these figures were standing. Uh, And it stopped about nearly half a meter from their head. 
mm-hmm. and it disappeared for a moment and it, it was as if it was prompting them to do something and it prompted them to sit down in the sand they're sitting down their backs are remaining rigid and they start to uh, scrape out this kind of like moat almost um yes. with the with their hands which also adds to just the absolute strangeness of this case. Yeah, especially because uh, afterwards, maybe I'm getting ahead of, uh, of ourselves, but afterwards they, they saw the markings left by the beings after they departed the beach, transformed, and the, the markings in the sand indicated very, very long and very thin fingers. Mm-hmm. You know, something oh, like something that wouldn't be consistent with a, a normal human hand, I guess. Yeah. They watch these figures then lay down in the sand, which is mm-hmm. uh, like lay down. And it, 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 uh, the way you described it, it's like it, it was almost like a fortification in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pedro Gonzalez had been the one looking at things through the binoculars, you know, just keeping a watchful eye. And then he proceeded to just like drop them and start to run. And, uh, you know, everybody basically tried to hold them back. And he says, there's a taller figure there, uh, you know, right on the shoreline behind them. And at the time, they just didn't see this, whatever this tall hulking figure was. Um, but the way that you described him in the way that, uh, because he will show up again and, uh, they'll see him more clearly. It's, it's about 10 feet tall. It's wearing, uh, it's looks like it's adorned in all black wearing all black, or it could just be, you know, all black except for its head, which seems to be white. Mm -hmm. Uh, they couldn't see it at first, um, just by looking in that direction, but, uh, eventually this ball of light disappears this small ball of light that's been uh it disappeared reappeared around these figures and all of a sudden these strange beings that are laying in the sand are transformed into human looking figures now yeah it's like a magical act right i mean we don't know exactly how the transformation unfolded if it was uh instantaneous or if it was like something out of a of a, a Hollywood movie, like in which they show you like the gradual morphing of the figure, we don't, we just don't know. We just know that the testimony of the witnesses is like when they stood up. <laughs> not only the the features of the entities had dramatically changed, but also. Now they were using wearing uh, normal clothes like yes. jeans and skirts. Like what the hell? Where did they have that? Where where where, where was their traveling bag? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, it's just okay. Cool, you're you're people now. I guess that's <laughs> I guess that's how this goes down. Now you know exactly. Yeah, I, I want to know what this tech is because uh, it would make things so much easier, you know, just like trying to blend in with your surroundings. And, you know, if you're if you're in an awkward social situation and you have the ability to blend in, I want that technology immediately. <laughs> but it is. Is it technology? Rob? Yes. Because 
I know that my good friend and partner in crime, Joshua Kutchin, would immediately, right about this time, jump in to the conversation and, and point out all the similarities with the faith folk glamour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the idea that the fairies were able to fool witnesses into thinking that they were of a certain shape when in reality it was just um, an illusion. Maybe it's an illusion that is just uh, done in the mind of the witnesses or maybe it is something that actually happens um, in the physical. We just don't know. I mean, we have only a few hints that maybe it's just some kind of like illusion because if I remember correctly, the footprints that were left by the humanoids, even after they were transformed, they were still very weird. They, they, mm-hmm. they showed abnormally large feet with yes. a very prominent, uh, uh, you know, big, big uh, toe. Yeah. So what's 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 with that? You know, does it mean that maybe the witnesses didn't look uh, correctly? Maybe they were so uh, fascinated by the transformation that they never bothered to look down and see that the woman and the and, and the man had like really large freakish toes, or like uh, you know, like goblins or something. I don't know. Yeah. The footprint definitely, yeah, it looks like it, they just have one giant, enormous toe and like, yeah. you know, like a lot of uh, like foot that it, it just lo- it, it didn't look like there were a lot of toes, just one giant, massive, bulky toe. Well, the, the the most interesting thing about the man. So, you know, he he has very long blonde hair, kind of like a Orthon like long blonde hair. And right. wearing jeans and this checkered shirt, but the thing is, is like his his forehead is extremely long, and 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 it's great because you compare him to Exeter from This Island Earth, and like that's <laughs> a great comparison because like I grew up with the uh, MST 3K um, right. version of that, and it's it's just so great. Interestingly enough, the woman she she had more Asian features. She was shorter. She had long dark hair, wore a blouse and a skirt, which was just very very strange. But they get up, they they lift themselves up from the sand and they start moving in the direction of the witnesses. And they're walking in like a single file line. The male is walking mm-hmm. ahead. The female is mm-hmm. walking behind, uh, largely because this male was taking greater strides just because he was so tall. Yeah. And they approached a dark alley right as they're about to disappear. There's like a small white cloud that, uh, that approaches from the sea fast and, and, when it reached the shore, it evaporated, and these folks just kind of disappeared uh, into the town. Right after this, the tall, dark figure appears near the shore. It's confirmed by Pedro, mm-hmm. and this being is not standing. It's hovering slightly, yeah. which is, is even more off-putting, I would say. You know, you're tall. Do you really need to hover? I mean, that's... Yeah. You know, it, re- it reminded me, I'm a big fan of uh, the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it really, the, the 
the features of this being and, and the way it moves, it really reminded me of like the first angel, right? In, in the first mm-hmm. uh, episode, episode of that uh, cartoon series, like these, uh, well, they, call, they are called angels in the, in the series, but they, they are actually like, well, alien entities that are so different from, from humans. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it is so unnerving. I mean, I, I think I, I would have preferred something like almost like a, an entity moving like the, the Hulk yeah. from the Marvels, right? Yeah. Say, oh, Hulk smash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is definitely much worse. So the way that they describe its posture, it's very stiff. It's very rigid. It's not, it's not really moving much of its limbs, but it's, kind of floating and 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 then uh it departs uh towards the west and pedro and lazaro instantly kind of get this uh moment of bravery and they start to chase after this thing they get to within about 50 or 60 meters before they return to their friends um and they witness a, a one more bizarre thing that night they notice this bouncing light that just kind of um right how did you describe it it was kind of like um you know like on the tv where you see the bouncing ball right of. like the sing-along bouncing ball yeah or something like that yeah but it was like bouncing around i i think on the horizon or something like that and then uh eventually it, it departs but when uh all this activity dies down they run into a guy named uh, Juan Bermudez. He's a correspondent for a local radio station. He joins the yes. group. And, you know, having learned of their exploits, uh, he, he hopes to catch a glimpse of this himself. And together, the location where the two figures had, you know, laid down in the sand, they found the trench. It was about two meters wide, one meter long. And they described the sand as almost definitely like scratched, like definitely kind of like raked with long slender fingers. Mm-hmm. And they found a, a bunch of odd footprints. They measured about 18 inches long, six inches wide. And the one very big prominent toe and really uh, large arches. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think maybe they could give Bigfoot a run for their money. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Another strange aspect to this is that from the time that they observe these figures, you know, appear, uh, sit down, lay down, get up and start walking. There are way more footprints than they thought there would there should be on the beach at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's another interesting feature to this. Yeah. Moving in circles, I think, or something to that effect. And and again, the my mini Joshua Kachin in my in my left shoulder is reminding <laughs> me of all the, the the fairy dances in circles, yeah. right? Yeah, that people reported uh, in Ireland and all the other Celtic Celtic countries. By October fifth, this story had kind of just hit the press. You know, there was a, a Spanish group of, of UFO investigators. Uh, they were known as uh, Gaifo. Um, yeah, they they started to conduct their investigation, and they were kind of quick to put a lid on this. 
their determination was that it was a misidentification caused by, you know, overexcited imagination. The UFO was a British ship that was laying underwater cables for a telephone company. Uh, yes. And they had been using like light signals to coordinate scuba gear. And they kind of did just like shoddy work on this. I think that's the one thing that when skeptics come to the table is like, if the burden of proof is there, your work probably shouldn't be as shoddy. You know, it shouldn't just be, Hey, I made one phone call and found that there was a ship in the area at the time. But you know, if you don't get the full details, it's kind of lazy skepticism there. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's trying to, to find uh, the easiest explanation and, and often enough, Rob, they they end up cutting their throats with Occam's razor. Yeah, they they just kind of dismissed everything as uh, you know these figures were scuba divers that had appeared on land, which is kind of interesting that they had a, a change of clothes with them. You know, that's that's really yeah, great. exactly yeah. yeah. And 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 according to the skeptics, they created that moat or sand fort. Because uh, I guess being a man and a woman, well, they wanted to, you know, get jiggy with it, even <laughs> if, even if they know they are like uh, not right near uh, a public space like that bar Los Corales that we were talking about, uh, and uh, and I guess they didn't mind having the kids uh, uh, also near them. But just just they, they they created this fort in order in order to you know like uh, like cover the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gaifo released their report on October sixteenth, but the day before that, a guy named Jesus Borrego Lopez, uh, who was a police officer, he was also like an amateur UFO investigator. He traveled yeah. to Canil to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, he managed to track down all the witnesses. He's like, hey, let's, uh, you know, he, he brings them out to a bar and he's, you know, just getting them drinking. And, you know, he's like, hey, let's go out there and, and let's see, you know, if we can uh, experience anything. So they go back out to the beach and around 1035 that night, they caught sight of the strange shape-shifting couple. They yeah. made another appearance. Um, you know, the, yeah. the uh, of course, the forehead of the man was the number one identifier uh, of him. They follow them to see where they're going. They're doing their best to you know keep pace. And shortly after Borrego Lopez, Pedro Sanchez, every all the witnesses uh, had caught up. Right before that, they had just like vanished into thin air. Um, you know, like mm -hmm. strange figures do from time to time. And then they noticed like a strange black object that was approaching from the water uh, and its movements were very erratic, you know, as being as kind of like a push and pull kind of force. And then that dark mass suddenly became a human figure, uh, mm -hmm. a, a woman who yeah. was sprinting just very fast like i think the way you described it is like yeah it reminds me of like uh cartoons growing up and watching like uh characters <laughs> run like really fast their legs are just going you know yeah and, yeah the road runner and, and, yeah and the wally coyote yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly like that so this woman's sprinting she um she pulls ahead of these witnesses she stops like 60 meters from them and, and she just starts removing her clothes. 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, she starts to to move away again, and and then she's joined by two other individuals, just out of nowhere. Like, I, the 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 strangeness with this case is just it's crazy. It's baffling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, there are cases in which you get the idea that the encounter or, or the entities appear for this, the benefit of the witness, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Betty Andreasson, Whitley Strieber. Okay, they, we come for you. Yeah. And, and there is no doubt about it. Like, uh, the reason the entities are there is, is because of the witness or, or the abductee. But with this case, it feels like the witnesses are an, are an annoyance to the entities. So they create these games mm-hmm. in order to divert the attention. Like, oh, don't look over there. Look over here. Yeah. You know, you know, like don't look at what's happening with the right hand. Look at happening with the left hand. Also, like uh, like a magician. So uh, I don't know. So uh, apparently, maybe because uh, Borrego and and the kids they were thinking about maybe uh, following or trying to find where the the tall guy with a big forehead went that the other, uh, that like the sprinting woman, (laughs) the (laughs) roadrunner woman appeared in order to like say, no, 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 no. Look over here. And then after they were totally baffled by this, uh, then the other, the other, uh, uh, entities appear, and I think I think uh, by by the end, the man and the woman reappear, and they they return to town. Uh, and it's like, okay, what's going on here? Are they trying to put on a show for for Borrego and and, and the kids? Or are they trying to divert attention to other things that were happening there? Uh, because I mean, also I mean, the idea, okay. The, entertaining the idea yes there are aliens extraterrestrials whatever you want to call them that they're infiltrating uh our planet why yeah. would you do it in a in a tourist town <laughs> why would yeah. you do it in a tourist town you know in a beach in a public beach in, yeah. at uh, like 9 p.m why why aren't you doing your your you know, walking shenanigans at 3 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the intentionality of, of whatever these beings are, like, uh, especially it, it harkens back to Pierre Fortunato's Anfreda and his encounter with the Dargos and, you know, mm. them saying, hey, we're, we need a new home. You're going to be our emissary. We're going to give you this, this glass sphere or whatever it was. And, uh, you need to give this thing to Jay Allen Hynek. And uh, yeah, we're just, uh, we're going to get along peaceably. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, the strangeness is almost hard to wrap your head around, especially when it comes to like simple things like that. It's it, the absurdity of it. Uh, and, and, and like this gets into like the, what these people are experiencing on this beach. Uh, you know, at this direct moment is is beyond absurd. Uh, you know, it's yes. it's just 
yeah, it it def- it almost defies belief itself <laughs> to the point where you definitely had to be there. There's no way you could convince other people that this happened, but you know. Yeah. Um, and also remember that they actually had, uh, I think it was a video camera with them, yes, or something, or or a film camera, and they actually tried to uh, film the man and the woman, yes, uh, but nothing came out of the film. I don't know; it was kind of like uh, undeveloped or something. Yeah, uh, in total, uh, in in the time that they had observed the the uh, road runner woman. Uh, she had uh, traveled four kilometers or nearly two and a half miles in 45 seconds. And let me tell you, I wish I could do that. That would be amazing. Everybody, everybody wish we could do that. Yes. Borrego Lopez, he, he examined the footprints and, and he found that uh, the ones that uh, were left by the woman were kind of barely noticeable. She didn't put it seemed to be putting a lot of weight onto her feet but the the ones that were left by the man were from his estimation made by someone who was at least 220 pounds so yeah definitely uh you know significant uh difference there the couple actually returned around midnight and they <laughs> this time they were yeah they were armed with the camera the the tall male figure shot Borrego Lopez just like the death stare, and I think yeah. uh, is that what you uh, f- because you created uh, in the articles you wrote you created the art f- that appears at the top, right? Yeah, I wanted to because it is so difficult to find uh, illustrations about this case, yeah. and yeah. the ones that I did find weren't particularly appealing to me. Yeah. So I say, okay, what the hell? I'm going to do uh, two illustrations for for myself, and I did. I tried to do my best, uh, and actually, I'm very uh, happy with the way that I portray the the male. Yes, yeah. uh, annoyed and yes. not particularly <laughs> that. Uh, I mean, he's not like threatening. I, I'm like, he's not like giving like I'm going to kill you. She's not like you shouldn't be here. It's, it's yes, kind of like. Uh, message that i wanted to convey in his eyes yes he's he's definitely got the stink guy you know he's, he's shooting the stink guy definitely uh the why are you being so weird about this like there's nothing mm-hmm. strange going on here just stay away and then you know the woman she said the in in the article said that uh she looked more nervous than anything she uh mm-hmm. yeah so they they run into these figures and you know after they get that look, they kind of hang back and they lose them in, in in the streets. But after the debunking, JJ Benitez he he comes uh, comes a knock in and and does mm-hmm. uh, he puts forth a great investigation. There are, there is actually one case of his that I have covered and it is the case of the man. He was only identified by his first name and his first name was Henry. And uh, he had encountered a strange man in South Africa in 1951. Oh, right. Yes. On the, he had I used just... that one, that case, too, when I talked about uh, uh, my, uh, my articles about uh, Planet Umo. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is another really interesting uh, 
it's an interesting how do we put this because like you know it's, <laughs> it's very it, it's very it's a very contentious subject oh yeah but, for sure uh but uh i think what's most interesting about it is that uh you know the the umo case involves like a photo that's hoaxed oh yeah for that sure that has a symbol underneath it that symbol also apparently appeared on the craft at Verona edge so yeah. you know we have we have that connection going on here but yeah yeah jj benitez he he shows up uh, in canil and uh, he he starts his investigation and uh he did find that there were two ships in the area um and one of them the the one that was actually laying cable uh, was a ship called the cs monarch and yes. they had been hired by uh, a company called Telefonica to yes. lay some lines. Um, the work had begun in the area on September 18th. And it's interesting there because like by September 18th, they have already made four trips out there. Uh, and they have seen this reddish orange large object in the sky for four nights already. So automatically it can't be that ship. It's showing up a little too, ma- too late. Not only that, but it's... Uh, at the time, it was working, you know, 60 miles off of shore. So there's no way that they could see it, uh, given uh, I, I think like the visual range from shore was about like five miles or something like that. In terms of the episode, the event on the 29th, it would have been impossible for a large ship to be in that area uh, due to the low tides and the uh, strong winds. So that was uh, another jab that Benitez took at uh Gaifo. Yes. <laughs> and what's great here is that Benitez was actually able to, you know, contact the captain of the ship, uh, a guy named uh, J.A.B. Simpkins, who placed mm-hmm. the ship about 30 miles away from Batalis. They weren't even in visual visual exactly. range for that. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, he, he wouldn't have had, you know, uh, divers in the area either. But um, yeah. There's another uh, another aspect that uh, Benitez has uh, managed to uh, uncover in his oh, field yes. investigation. The yep. idea that he actually managed to find a hotel where two German tourists uh, stayed in. Yeah. Then he made some inquiring, and it turns out that those German citizens had never left the country. And this is something that I I want to point out now, Rob, now that we have gone through the main, the core story of the Conil case, because uh, I'm sure you're familiar with another Spanish investigator, Jose Antonio Caravaca, mm-hmm. you know, who is, 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 is a great guy. You, everybody should follow him on, on Twitter, even though that mostly he tweets in, in Spanish, but you know he occasionally uh, tweets in English too. But anyway, he sent me some time ago this article that he wrote for this uh, Spanish site, The Lojo Critico. It's a really it's a long, but it's a really, really interesting case in which he tries to show that at the time of this uh, uh, close encounter, or alleged close encounter, there were at least... Uh, there were the, the the involvement of the secret services of at least two countries, Spain and Germany, involved in that particular area at the time. And 
it turns out that I mean we were talking about how the 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 skeptic were saying that all this was a case of misidentification because uh, they were this uh, uh, these boats they were laying out this um, telephone cable uh, under the sea right. Mm. Uh, but Karabaka makes the point that th- th- there were uh, spy agencies that were very interested in trying to put some type of uh, uh, intercept interception devices on those cables in order to spy on those uh, telephone conversations. Oh, and, this yeah. is, and this is something that uh, was happening right about that time. And at least three countries were, were in dispute here. You know, there the, the were the, the Spaniards, there were the Germans who apparently were in league with the, with the Spanish. Let, let us remember that back in uh, World, War Th- uh, World War II, Spain and Germany were kind of like allies mm-hmm. uh, by the time of uh, Generalissimo Franco. Yeah, and, and Hitler, and, and apparently those ties remained even after World War Two ended, and then there are the British, right? The, the British who are located in Gibraltar, yes, and 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 the British were none too pleased of of seeing the, the Spanish and the German like teaming together. So in this article, and I'll send you the link after we finish recording this, so you take a look. Uh, you, I'm, yep. I'm sure you can read it using uh, Google Translate. Yep. He makes the point that he he's not like trying to say, oh yeah, those two uh, beings, the tall blonde and the woman, were actually German spies. Also, he kind of like makes this soft suggestion, but he only wants to try to point out that uh, while all of this was happening, there were all these uh, secret service shenanigans going on. So to me, when I read this. It, it almost reminds me of another very f- popular case in the annals of ufology, which is, of course, Rendlesham mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. Because yes. you have, with Rendlesham, you have the true believers who say, no, 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 there were actually UFO activity in this uh, American uh, British military base. And there were, you know, uh, craft observed and the craft somehow interfered with the nuclear weapons that were stored there illegally by the way mm-hmm. we have the, uh, the 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 testimony of lieutenant uh, of sorry the colonel halt um, we also have the, the the book left at east gate which of course has now is now mired in controversy mm-hmm. because of the disputes between the two uh, co-authors, uh, Peter Robbins yeah. and Larry Warren and all that. Yep. So there's that. And then there's the, the skeptics, like almost like the Gaifos guys, who are trying to debunk the case using the stupidest arguments. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. The UFO was actually a lighthouse. The landing marks were actually like burrows left by uh, rabbits. <laughs> so it was all just a big misunderstanding. Not, nothing to see here. And there's the third wave of thinkers like Nick Redfriends who who suspect, well, maybe there was some other involvement. Maybe there was some kind of like secret 
experimentation with mind control techniques, maybe with some kind of like psychotronic weaponry in which the guards or the personnel that was stationed in this base were used as unwitting guinea pigs. So there's this all this conflating which make makes the Rendlesham case so difficult to crack. And I almost feel that with Conil we get the same result. Like we have, yeah, the true believers, you know, Benitez defending the, the high strangeness of the case. And even Caravaca. Caravaca admits that yes, there, there there's been multiple uh, reports of uh, beings aside from the, the the famous one that happened in 1989. And there are obviously the, the skeptics we're discussing, but also Karabaka points out, but aside of that, there is this, there is this involvement because of the strategic importance of this particular area of Europe. You know, I mean, the, the area in which uh, uh, Europe and Africa almost touch in which the Mediterranean ends and the geopolitical importance of that area should also be taken into account. It's almost like, well, even we, we could speculate and say, well, maybe the entities uh, were, were also interested in what, what was going on with all these, uh, you know, cloak and dagger shenanigans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with the secret service intelligence maybe maybe the entities were also interested in what what, what was going on with the german and, and spanish spies although obviously here i'm i am speculating yeah but i mean like you know that that's what this this uh subject is it's it's mm-hmm. speculation it's all speculation but i mean exactly. uh yeah there there is one other detail here uh, that I, I think could definitely play into that. And that's the between September 27th and the 30th, there was a nearby military radar station that had suffered some mysterious malfunctions. So, yes, you know, basically anything that would come into the area at that time would be, you know, untraceable. Right. That could definitely also feed into both sides of that. Hey, aliens are visiting or uh, these beings are visiting. Let's just disable the radar. Let's make this uh, easy. Um, but like, yeah. you know, they seemingly at least they they seem to stick around for at least a few weeks. You know, I yeah. I, I I kind of hoped that uh, that at some point there's there's somebody that has to come forward and say, oh, yeah, I, I you know, like maybe some like, you know, uh, store clerk or something like that is like, oh, yeah, I waited <laughs> on these weirdos. <laughs> and they, exactly. they had like strange requests and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when they tipped me, they tipped me in like diamonds or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But. Yeah, that is the Keneal case, and man, it's just, again, you know, having, you know, it's sandwiched with the Veronage case, it's like, they're two very odd cases involving strange humanoids that are uh, very tall and just very strange on their own like uh, the the strange elements there's strange elements in the Veronish case and like in which like 
witnesses described objects like disappearing and reappearing like, uh, oh, the being got out and then it disappeared for a second and then it came for a couple minutes. Then it came back and then it pointed right. some wand at a kid and made him disappear for a few minutes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not no disappearing witnesses uh, in Coneal. No, as far no. as we know. But yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's something that I actually hadn't considered yet. How how the entities in both cases, uh, Voronezh and Coneal, had that particular ability of uh, appearing and disappearing. Mm-hmm. You know, either either. And I guess if we use the nuts and bolts analogy, okay, cloaking and decloaking using yeah. some kind of like uh, invisibility tech, or maybe it's something far more uh, esoteric than that. I don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, I mean, it's all magic to us, man. You know, that's that's exactly. what it looks like. It, it looks like magic to us. And it's kind of like my friends Scott and Forrest over at Astonishing Legends always talk about uh, the Mothman prophecies window and that analogy, uh, uh, that analogy of the uh, window washer having that advantage, you know, that different vantage point because he's so high mm-hmm. and you can see, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, like it, it makes you wonder, like, you know, uh, is it so so much that they're so advanced or, you know, what is it that gives them the, this advantage, this vantage point? And um, these are cases that make you wonder because one is definitely, you know, became more renowned. Actually, you know, uh, I, I believe Ronej actually had, you know, appeared in the New York Times. So, um, oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, there was like a a small blurb in the New York times about it. So mm. it's interesting that, you know, these cases happen around the same time, but one gets a little more coverage than the other one. Yeah. Like you said, you know, it's endless speculation about the idea of uh, the, cap- the capabilities of these entities. Uh, sometimes it's very tempting to think of them almost like uh, infallible gods. Uh, but then again, is it that they didn't count of having witnesses uh, in that beach at that particular time? And that was kind of like, oh, you know, we missed that. Okay, like, go to go to plan B, the countermeasures, you know, send in the giant. <laughs> or, or was it all carefully, and this is something that Benitez speculates uh, very heavily in his books, the idea that everything that these beings do is carefully and heavily orchestrated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like a you know a stage play being put for our benefit. And maybe you know the the idea, the main idea behind this is that implanting the seed of the idea that. Uh, that yeah, these beings have the capability to infiltrate our society, like mm-hmm. like like we know. Okay, yeah, maybe they are actually alien beings walking among us, unbeknownst to us. And this mm-hmm. is something that we now know because of the Coneal case. Of course, this is something that only you and I freak out about because we're weirdos. <laughs> yeah. you know, because the, the Coneal case, you know, yeah. didn't have like the impact of I don't know the Tic Tac. Yeah, tic tac case or something like that, and and this I guess I guess is something that uh, Valet points in his books. You know the control system, how 
the best way to like uh, slowly and gradually alter a society and try to like uh, veer them into a desired direction is if you do it in a very clandestine way, you know, like from the bottom up instead of uh, top down. You know, mm-hmm. the top down is disclosure. The the thing that uh, UFO Twitter uh, dreams about, you know, like the the, the UFO landing on the White House lawn and and, and, and and this tall blonde with a huge forehead saying, okay, tell me, to, take me to your Joe Biden. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that will be it. But no, this is, these beings weren't landing on the, on the White House lawn. They were landing in this little fishing and tourist town in Cadiz, Spain, doing God knows what. But hey, 30, 30 odd years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely are. And uh, uh, there was a case that I uh, recently covered. I think it was on, on a Patreon bonus episode of this um, um, South African couple that uh, they were making a late night drive home. And uh, they were basically escorted by UFOs for a great portion of their journey, Uh, so much so that, like, um, uh, it seemed as if at one point the UFO was kind of just, like, lifting the vehicle up and, uh, you know, doing the traveling for them um <laughs> how nice of them yeah yeah uh there was yeah there was at one point uh they arrived at one location to gas up and everything like that and uh they had uh i think their journey was like another something in the neighborhood of like 288 kilometers but uh according to their trip meter they had only traveled 19 kilometers, which is, you know, nice. It saves on gas. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but during this uh, event, there was uh, an abduction kind of like event where the witness described this. Uh, it was kind of like a being that appeared in the in the back seat, and it brought him up into the ship. And uh, he met these other strange beings. And he said that, they would appear how he wanted them to appear. So he was like, uh, if I want to see a, uh, a duck, I would see a duck. If I wanted to see a monster, <laughs> I would see a monster. <laughs> like, you want to see the uh, Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? Yeah. I'll see the Stay Puff Choose a form. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that these alien beings imparted to him was, uh, oh, we live on Earth. We live on Earth as doctors, you know, as, as, uh, I, I forget exactly how they worded it, but they talked about all these like mundane jobs and like uh, I think like, you know, one of them was like toilet plunger or something. It was just it was kind of funny. You know, they're blending in, you know, good for yeah. them. It, it, it yeah. uh, if they uh, if they definitely want to spend some time here, it's good for them to blend in. Yeah, exactly. Imagine if 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 you're a big honcho in Alpha Centauri and you think that is the greatest thing ever to have a mission on Earth. And become a janitor, like yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, you locked out, <laughs> you know. You're gonna be a janitor. Uh, I'm just just gonna be another banker in Wall Street. That's oh, okay. Well, better luck next time. <laughs> um, it's it's like that. Uh, have you ever read? It's a it's a book by a Spanish writer, and I can't even remember his name. It's a book called No Word from Gerb, 
it's um it's a very it's a very slim book it's all about these two aliens that land i think in barcelona and you know they're kind of doing you know trying to see what the human population does so uh the first alien gerb he gets out and you know he sees what's going on and he disguises you know he decides hey i'm going to disguise myself and who did he who does he disguise himself as madonna so you know i mean <laughs> blending in not the the best uh you know maybe not the very good at it but you know give them a shot but uh yeah it's a, that's a fun little book um yeah uh, there's an, another case that should, you should definitely cover in your uh podcast is uh, uh, a case that Juan Jose Benitez is also uh, investigated, and he wrote a book about it. And the title of the book is Ricky B. And it's the story of this uh, woman that got hooked up with this uh, wealthy uh, Spanish uh, businessman, you know, entrepreneur. And they were getting along fine. I mean, you know, young lovers doing what young, young lovers do. But the guy eventually got a nerve with, with the woman because she was she was so quirky. First of all, she only ate uh, white bread and milk, <laughs> only that. And and she only she always chastised him when he ordered like steak and he like drank wine and he smoked. And, you know, he told, and she used to tell him, you know, the the human body is designed to last uh, uh, 200 years or something like that. But you, the way that you treat it, you know, it's, it's, that's why you guys uh, age so rapidly and something like that. And also that when they were making love, like she was totally not into it, you know, like mm-hmm. only going to emotions, almost like... Uh, well, no, no, not not like uh, Tony Villas-Lobos because uh, her his alien lover. Uh, I, I guess she was into into it, but she grunted like a dog. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, lo- long story short, Benitez uh, locates this Ricky B, and he he really gets the impression that either she's uh, some kind of like a schizophrenic maniac or she is an alien walking. Mm. That she was uh, an American tourist that suffered a very, uh, very traumatic accident in Mexico, actually in Tulum, in in, in, in here in, in in Yucatan Peninsula. She she was in a in a bus crash, and the idea that you get in the book is that that's the moment when when this woman died or or her soul departed that some kind of like alien entity took possession of, of her body. And that's, you know, the story of Ricky B. And uh, it's one like, like, like the Coneal case is very much unresolved. It's a lot of gaps, a lot, a lot of what, what ifs, but it is a fascinating case nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is no such thing as closure with the subject ever. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this this crazy, crazy case. So, um, what what kind of projects do you have going on right now? I know, um, you know, the ufology tarot deck. Uh, how did you uh, initially become involved in that? 
Well, that would take a, <laughs> that would take another podcast. But uh, the the very very summarized version of it is that my friend and mentor Greg Bishop invited me to this uh, closed uh, group that he put together with like minded people because he wanted to organize weekly salons, you know, via Skype. Not only to uh, hang out and and have a good time and discuss UFO topics, but also to try to do something concrete. Because Greg has always been of the idea that ufology benefits from working with small groups. The moment that you get big groups like uh, MUFON Mm. or APRO and ICAP, that's when things get... uh, really nasty really quickly or if not quickly eventually so then in one of those salons uh greg came up and said hey you know i always have this idea that maybe we could create some kind of like tarot deck but instead of the typical avatars of the tarot we could use people or characters from the history ufology and everybody said, oh, my God, that is, the, like, the greatest idea ever. <laughs> and, and, and I almost think that he told me that idea beforehand in a private conversation between the two of us. So I, I already knew about that. So I, I encouraged it. But at the same time, I was kind of, like, resistant because I knew that the brunt of the, the work will fall into my shoulders because I was like uh, the artist or the only artist in that group. <laughs> and at first I was like saying, I don't know if I can pull this off. I don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I have the skills. And they kept insisting, insisting, insisting and say, uh, until I finally say, okay, fine, I'll do, <laughs> I'll try to do one, you know, and if it comes out horrible, that will be the end of it. And I created one and it wasn't that horrible. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> okay, I'll say fine. And we tried to do it, uh, you know, in in my quote-unquote free time mm. for a couple of years until I realized, okay, this is going to take like a decade if, if we're going at this pace because the tarot deck is kind of longer, like uh, 70-something, you know, cars involved. Mm. And it took me like six months to just to draw one Puny little car. Like, okay, this is this is not going well. So then we decide, okay, maybe we can do some kind of like a crowdsourcing campaign, you know, to try to to get the people involved, get the funds. Basically, the funds is for me, so I can solely devote myself to draw these cars and do nothing else except you know the occasional podcast appearance like this one and keep the writing for the daily grail which is uh, the place where i started to become involved with the paranormal scene and yeah uh unfortunately for us the response was better than we could have ever expected uh we were funded beyond 200 mm-hmm. percent uh, which is kind of like uh, amazing so, yeah, right now, that is going to be my life for here to November of 2022. That's going to be the thing that, I, that I'm going to dedicate uh, almost all my waking time, aside from, you know, <laughs> going to the bathroom and such. Uh, 
And aside from that, yeah, uh, I, I, I'll still try to keep uh, writing for the Daily Gray, although I, 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 I realize that I haven't put anything new in quite a while, I guess. And uh, aside from, from feeling drained from, from all these the campaign and all that. Uh, yeah. There's not too much going on on the UFO scene that inspires me right now, Rob, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's very dry and very bleak. And I know <laughs> that if, I, if I'm going to write something, it's probably going to be a very, a rant, a very, uh, an, an editorial rant. Maybe, maybe that's what, what's going, what's going to do. I'm going to do uh, maybe tomorrow or, uh, next Sunday, uh, because I, I really am wary on the direction that uh, the UFO scene, particularly in the United States, is heading. It's mm-hmm. not. It's, it's not looking good. No, it's uh, it's very stagnant. It mm-hmm. it kind of landed with a boom with the New York yeah. Times article and. We I, I, I felt it was, it. yeah, yeah. With the release of that uh, preliminary report in June, that was, I think, that what deflated this balloon mm-hmm. uh, for good. And right now, there are people trying to uh, keep blowing on it. Uh, occasionally, kind of like it's a bump. Uh, yeah, you know, with yeah. this, uh, the idea of the oh, you know, this amendment by. Senator Gillibrand, oh, mm-hmm. to, to, to have a new and improved UFO office. Oh, yeah. But then we have the bad UFO uh, uh, office that the Pentagon is putting on. Uh, Louis Lissondo says, no, no, that's a bad one. Boo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what we want. Yeah. Uh, uh, so this is this back and forth, back and forth that, uh, honestly, I don't think a lot of people not a lot of people understand. I don't understand it. I'm trying to read the, the legalist the papers uh, in these bills, and I can barely comprehend it. You know, you need people like uh, Douglas E. Johnson, who is someone who uh, tweets on, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I think he is a lawyer. I think, and, and he kind exactly. of like sums it up. He he like choose choose it up and digest it for the for the benefit of us uh, dumbasses. Uh, and and yeah, that uh, that that's the only thing that's going on. As oh, that and and the Galileo project that I was very excited about it at the beginning, but right now it's starting to look uh, like just another mm-hmm. uh, UFO project that tries to be quote unquote scientific. Yeah, uh, I still wish them the best of luck. I, I mean, I have I know people that are involved in it. That I that I care for, but it's not looking good. I mean, I don't understand why they they need to have people like Elizondo and Melon and Nick Pope. I don't know why Nick Pope is is there with uh, with uh, with this with this scientist. Uh, but yeah, that's the UFO scene in late twenty twenty one. Absolutely. Uh, uh, in next week's episode, I had uh, Chris Cogswell on, who was you know, briefly a part of the Galileo project and he voiced similar concerns and, uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and announce, announcing his departure, uh, from it as well. So yeah, it's, um, you know, we'll see what 2022 has to offer, uh, you know, disclosure. Yeah. 
Nah. Give it to us. <laughs> give it to us or give it to somebody or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So uh, where where can people follow your work? Because, uh, you know, you, you do you have your, uh, you know, writings with the Daily Grail. You also, you know, do you have your art on, on you know, your website. So where, where can people follow along with what you have going on? Yeah, my main page is uh, absurdbydesign.com. And the name of that website, by the way, is something that I like took out from uh, Jacques Vallée's writing. Mm-hmm. The idea that, okay, these phenomenon, UFOs, they are absurd, but maybe there is a method to the madness. Maybe they are yeah. absurd by design. So mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, yeah, I like that idea, so especially <laughs> if it is a site devoted mainly to art and design. So, yeah, you can check out uh, my art commissions, also the the book covers that, ha- that I have designed for friends that have to do with uh, UFOs, like uh, Saucers, Books, and Cooks. I think that we discussed it uh, in this mm-hmm. Recording also it defies language, which was the first uh, cover that I made. UFOs reframing the debate. I'm still very proud of that one mm-hmm. uh, and other ones. And yeah, you, and also you can find me. I'm very very active in uh, on Twitter. It's like my my favorite social media platform. I, I guess I'm also on Facebook. I have my my red pill junkie facebook page there but truth be told i really i barely use it so you guys want to follow me on twitter uh you can i'm sure you will find me and uh i i think we i I respond i respond to to tweets and and i try to put uh, not only things about ufos because that would be uh, that would be tiresome uh (laughs) but yeah yeah it's, it's it's a fun it's a fun platform it is. It really is. Uh, thank you again for joining me for this episode. Um, if you want to support what we do at the Our Strange Skies podcast, folks, uh, please rate us uh, and, and review us. Uh, it helps a lot. We also have a Patreon. Uh, the link will be in the description. And uh, $3 a month, it'll get you this episode, which will be out on Monday. Uh, it'll get you this episode early. It'll be out on Patreon sometime tomorrow. But um, uh, yeah, if you want uh, bonus episodes, early releases, $3 a month over on Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash your UFO guy. Uh, special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO for the intro and outro to this program. And our logo was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in the, the skies of southern Spain. In gray, we trust.
Duvid Media.